Can you hear me now? Good morning. <laughs> it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here with you again. I always enjoy coming here to Providence Press. I enjoy you. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us these these precious words of life. And Father, I pray that today you would write these words on our hearts, that you, would, that you would encourage us, that you would revive us by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we come to this passage. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. We come to this passage. It's, it's significant that this, this is a prayer of Paul, one of Paul's prayers, praying for the Ephesian church the Ephesians. And it's right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. The first couple of chapters have to do with the sovereignty of God and salvation, the sacrifice of Christ for our salvation, the love of God in giving Christ for our salvation, and the spirit indwelling in us. It's the doctrine of salvation for the first two chapters in in Ephesians. Then the last two chapters are about what this looks like what this love, the spirit living in the Christian, what this looks like in everyday life. So it's very practical. And then right in the middle of this, we have this prayer of Paul. Now, this passage, as I said, it is very profound. It's very deep. And there's so much in here that it's, that it's hard to do it justice in just one sermon. As a matter of fact, Martin, Dr. Martin Lord-Jones did an 18-sermon series on this passage. 18 sermons. And when I was looking at it, when I was studying it and and thinking about it, I can see that. I can see how that would be. It is extremely deep and profound. And in the beginning here, it says, for this reason, which for this reason refers to the, the previous two chapters, which is the sovereignty of God in our salvation and the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, this is significant because this is the only place in Scripture where Paul says he bows his knees. Paul prays throughout the Scripture. We have, we have tons of prayers of Paul. He prays for the churches. He prays for the things that are going on in, in, uh, around him in the culture of that time. And yet this is the only time where he says he bows his knees before the Father. He addresses God the Father. 
by bowing his knees. This, this shows his submission and his humility. When he bows, it's like bowing before the king. It's like bowing before a king and, and bowing your head and kissing the ring. It's, it's total submission. But what more importantly, what it shows is the passion that Paul had in this particular prayer. He prays for spiritual riches and growth for the church. Now, Paul is writing this this prayer, this book. He's writing this letter to the Ephesians. He's in prison in Rome, so he's probably chained to a guard and he's in a dungeon somewhere. So he's in a prison in Rome. What's interesting to me is what he does not ask for. He doesn't ask for to be released. He doesn't ask to be freed from his bondage in prison. Another thing that's significant, he doesn't ask for the Ephesians, the, the, the church in Ephesus, for the people in Ephesus. He doesn't ask for their relief. The Ephesian church was extremely persecuted at the time. Idolatry was, was huge in Ephesus during that time. And the Christians were were isolated. So they lost their jobs. They couldn't work because most of their jobs were around building idols, making idols and selling these idols. And they were, they were ostracized from any work. So they were suffering from poverty. They were suffering from persecution. And they certainly had their fair share of problems going on. And yet Paul doesn't pray for that. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. When we pray for healing, scripturally, we are supposed to do that. When we pray for for our job promotion, when we pray for a test, I remember I used to pray fervently right before a test because I hadn't studied. And so I needed a miracle so that I could pass a test. That's life. We pray for these things and God wants us to pray. He wants us to pray openly as a matter of fact, in Philippians 4, 6, it says, don't be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We are supposed to do that. I tell you what, the most fervent prayer time of my life, and I know all of you have had times when, when things are Things are difficult when things are going, when things are going wrong or when there's, when there's trouble or there's sickness and you have these passionate times of prayer. The most passionate time of prayer for me was when my wife, Pam, when, when we heard, when we got the diagnosis that she had cancer and they said she probably had a year and a half to two years to live. That for me was a time when I passionately prayed more passionately than ever before in my life, prayed for her healing. And I prayed for God to be with us, for his presence in our lives. And God blessed me wonderfully. Instead of a year and a half to two years, Pam had four years that she lived. And she lived fairly comfortably for those four years. God relieved her of much of the pain and suffering that most of the cancer patients that with her type of cancer went through. And he, more importantly, he blessed us with this rich communion with each other, but also with him. 
Those four years were a period of absolute growth in our spiritual lives. So it's okay to pray for those things. But what Paul is saying is that foundation, foundationally to everything in our life is the spiritual prayers. He's praying that they understand who they are in Christ Jesus and the eternal power that's there for them in Christ. It's a prayer of sanctification for the saints. This prayer is not material, has nothing to do with material or physical. It is absolutely spiritual. So in verse 16, it says that according to the riches of his glory, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is the riches of glory? What is the riches of God's glory? What is God's glory? What does it mean when we say glory to God? We, we hear that word glory for God all the time. It just rolls off of our tongue and goes just like this. What does glory mean? It means God's glory is that he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is holy, 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 absolute perfect and holiness. He's the judge. He's the one that we all will stand before in the end. He owns all of the past. He owns the present. He owns the future. He owns the universe because he created it. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He's the king over all kings and he holds all power in his hands. That's the riches of his glory. And we have that access. We look to that source for our spiritual blessings. And it says, according to according to the riches of his glory. It doesn't say out of the riches of his glory. Now, there's a big difference there. If you have a millionaire, if a millionaire gives a dollar to someone, he's giving out of his millions. Now, if he gives according to his millions, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars because it represents what he has. So the source of the giving is represented by the gift. So what Paul is praying, that according to this omnipotent, omniscient source, we, want, we get that measure, we get that part of that according to his, his magnificence, according to his omniscience. It's reflective of the giver. It's, it's like this. If, you were a ch- if you're a child, when you make your Christmas list, you remember when you were kids, some of you still remember now, but when you're kids and you make your Christmas list, your Christmas list generally is reflective of your parents' ability to give. So a, a child from a very poor family might ask for socks without holes. Or he might ask for a box of crayons or maybe for a candy bar, a chocolate bar. But the child of a wealthy family would ask for iPhone, Xbox, latest, latest gaming, latest computers, or if you get older, maybe even a car, 
That's according to the source, according to the ability of the source to give. That's the way we think. And that's what Paul is saying, that according to these riches, the glory of God, according to that, we should be blessed. Now, understanding the riches of God, what does Paul ask for? Strength and power. Now, when we think of strength and power, we think of someone, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, or somebody that can, can lift 500 pounds. Or maybe a truck that pulls thousands of pounds of cargo. Or maybe a monster truck with the big wheels. That's what I think of. Most people want, most people desire power of some sort. Politicians want political power. Athletes want the power to perform and they work hard and devote their lives to that, to perform. CEOs want the power to lead their companies well. CFOs want the power over all of the finances so that they can can be a, a financial blessing to this company. But Paul is talking here about something of much higher priority than any of these things. In our prayers as Christians, Paul is asking that we be granted power and strength so that Christ may dwell in us through faith. He's asking for the power and strength of faith so that Christ may dwell in us and work through us mightily. And he says, through his spirit in our inner being. Now, our inner being is the very lifeblood of our, of our existence. It's who we are. It's the essence of our being. It's our attitudes. It's our thinking. It's our worldview. It's how we see things. It's who we are in our essence. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says it this way. Though our outer nature, that's our outer being, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature Our inner being is being renewed day by day. Now, each day I get older. And at my age, I feel it. I know I'm getting older. I know that my outer being is wasting away. I have pains that I never had pains before. I had pains in places that I never even knew I had places before. I'm not able to move as quickly as, and easily as I used to be. I'm softer. I'm weaker. But the encouraging part of all this is that I know by God's word that my inner being, that is my spiritual being, is being strengthened. It's getting stronger. Christ in me is getting stronger by the power of the spirit that lives in me. Now he says, so so that Christ may dwell in us. Now the goal of the strength and power is so that Christ may dwell in us. If we are Christians, don't we already have Christ living in us? We already have that indwelling spirit. In the first two chapters, Paul explains that that spirit is sealed in us once we believe. So for Christians, we already have that. So what is Paul referring to here? The power and strength so that Christ may dwell in us. 
Well, the word for dwell there literally means to settle in. It means to be comfortable in. It's Christ being comfortable or at home in us. It's not as though he's just there and we call on him like a genie. We rub and say, okay, I need this. I need a new car or I need this on my house or whatever. That's not what it is. What it is, is that he's indwelling and he's comfortable there. He's living in us and he's working in us and he's living through us, working on others around us. When Pam and I, a couple of years after we got married, we, uh, we wanted to buy a house, but we couldn't afford one. So we decided to buy one and fix it up. We'd make a little money. We'd buy a house that, was, that needed some work. And we would do the work and then we would sell it and make some money. So we got this real estate agent, this, this friend of ours, this lady, and she was showing us these houses. And we saw this one and it seemed like it had so much potential. I mean, it, it had a lot of cosmetic stuff that needed to be done. It needed painting. It needed new flooring. It needed some stuff. So it needed cosmetic. But the, the real estate lady kept telling us, but it's got good bones. <laughs> You've heard that before, right? It's got good bones. Well, it didn't. We bought the house. We moved in. We started doing the cosmetic stuff. Well, while we're living there in this house, we started realizing that the plumbing was shot. It was horrible. So we had to redo almost the whole plumbing in the house. The electrical was bad. So we had to redo all the electrical in the house. So it wasn't just cosmetic. There were a lot of other things going on in this house. But we got it done. And we sold it. But when we got it all finished and got it all the way we wanted it, we wanted to stay. This house was now what we liked. But we sold it anyway. Because we had to recoup the cost that we'd poured into this thing. We didn't make money, but we did recoup our costs. That's what it's like. That's what it's saying here. That's what Paul is saying, that Christ wants to live in you and remodel you from the inside out. He's changing us day by day. So we're being remodeled. We are to have Christ indwelling us so greatly, so completely that he becomes our identity. We die to ourselves, so he lives through in us and through us. Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So here we've got this other aspect. So, so we've, we, um, we got the power and the strength that, that Christ may dwell in us, but we've also been rooted and grounded in love. Now rooted and grounded, what Paul is doing here, he's doubling, doubling the strength of this statement. So the roots, the rooted has to do with like the roots of a tree or the roots of a plant. The roots of a tree, as they go down, they give that tree strength on the surface, but they also nurture that tree. And grounded is a term used for like the foundation of a house. The foundation is strong so you can build it up. So he's using these two terms in order to give you this complete thought of rooted and grounded, of, of strength and nurturing and flow through us and building upward 
in love. He's asked for the power and strength that Christ may mightily dwell in us. And then he adds that we are rooted and grounded in love. This rooting and grounding in love is the byproduct. It's the the result of having Christ dwelling in us and remodeling us continually, growing us up inside to be like him. Christ is the power and the strength in us and love is the product or the fruit of that power. That you being rooted and grounded in love Verse 18 says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So what he's, what he's saying here is that the purpose of this, of this strength and this power that results in love is that we are able to comprehend the incomprehensible. We're able to know what is unknowable. This power and strength that Paul is praying for is the ability to understand the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love. Now, when Paul asks that we be able to comprehend that, this word comprehend literally means to seize, to grasp it, to make it our own, to seize it or possess it. Now, Something about love, to understand or to know the love of Christ. When you look up love in the dictionary, you'll get this definition of love. And we can know that in our minds, but that doesn't tell us what love is. Love is this this attribute of God, as it were. It's this attribute that we have to experience in order to know it. In order to understand it, we have to experience it. Love is experientially understood. And we can only understand love from this power to experience God's love in our lives. In Christ Jesus. And Paul uses this interesting phraseology and he says, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here he's asking for the impossible, the unknowable. This can only happen by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the love of God on us, this Holy Spirit power. We can't know this in our own power, no matter how powerful or intellectual or intelligent that we are. We can only know the power of love of Christ by experiencing it. And we can only share it with others by experiencing his love in our lives. In verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's what he's saying. We can do We will do more than we can think or imagine, much less ask for, because that power that's in us, spiritual power, is stronger than anything that we have in ourselves. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here we've got another dichotomy. Paul is asking that we'd be filled with, 
with all the fullness of God. We can't even imagine the fullness of God. Yet Paul is asking us to be filled with it and not just filled with the knowledge, filled with the with the um, fullness of God, but to be filled with all of it. All of the fullness of God. This is like in first Peter 1 16, where it says, be holy as God is holy. Or in Matthew 5, 48, where it says, be perfect as God is perfect. We can never be holy as God is holy. We can never be as holy as God. We can't be that holy, holy, holy God Almighty. And we can never be perfect as Christ or as God is perfect. The point is, though, that we can continually desire it and we can grow toward it in our lives so that we are growing in our sanctification, so that we're growing in our spiritual life and our spiritual strength. And in that growth, we're bringing others along with us and growing together. It's a matter of growth in direction. It's a matter of growing in maturity, spiritual maturity. In Ephesians 4, in the same book, a little later, 4 verses 12 through 13, Paul says it this way. To equip the saints for the work of of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ is the fullness of God. It's the com- Christ is the complete revelation of God Almighty. So when we come into the fullness of Christ, as we celebrate our salvation in Christ Jesus, as we celebrate Christ today, on this very day, the Lord's day, We are coming into that fullness of God in Christ Jesus. So here we have this logical progression that God, that Paul is praying that God grant us power and strength so that we, so that Christ may dwell in us through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. The result of that is love that we may know the love of Christ, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. What a prayer. Paul is asking God for the fulfillment of Christ's prayer in John 17, 26, when he said this. I made known to them. This is Jesus himself praying. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are to be filled with the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. And this seems impossible to us, and it is impossible for us, but not with God. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now you've got to admit, some of us are a mess. I'm a mess. Take my word for it. I'm a mess. And I know that some of you are a mess too. 
And we look around at our culture, we see our culture is a mess. It's messed up. And it seems to be growing in the wrong direction. It's getting messier instead of better. And we ask ourselves, is God able to change it? (laughs) Yes, God's able to change it. When we look at the church, the church in the United States, the church at large, it is a mess. We've got churches that you can't tell the difference from them and the world. The church is a mess. It's weak. Can God fix it? Yes, he can. He is able to reform the church. He's so much bigger than we can imagine. And he's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. According to this, according to his power at work within us. Ephesians 3.10, Paul said this just a little bit before this prayer. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Billy Graham once said this. He said, heaven is full of answers to prayers that we never prayed. Let me repeat that. Heaven is full of answers to prayers that we never prayed. When we look at this prayer of Paul as the foundation, the priority in our lives, do we pray this? What, what, would, what do you think the strength of the church in the culture in this area or in the United States at large or in the entire world, what kind of strength would the church have if every Christian was praying this prayer for themselves and for others? That by the power of the fullness of God, the riches of the glory of God, that that power would be in us and working through us. I suggest to you that we're praying for crayons. We're praying for candy bar instead of praying according to the riches of our Father in heaven. That's the weakness of the church. And that's what God wants to give us. He just wants us to ask for it. It's there. He is the source and he has all power. We just need to ask. We know that none of this is possible in our own strength. It's only possible to grow in us by the power of God and faith in Christ Jesus. And we must be so full of Christ's love and the knowledge of God that we pray passionately as Paul was praying passionately with all of our being, as I was praying for my wife's healing, as you have been praying passionately in times in your life, we need to pray passionately for this in ourselves, in our children, in our families, and in others as well. It must consume us by the power of God through the love 
of Christ. Let's pray.